Hello, Patriots. Welcome back to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth, bringing you insight from outside the mainstream. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we'll talk about the normalcy that was the battle for the Speaker of the House, the latest bureaucratic overreach attempt, and Biden being caught with documents he shouldn't have had. Next, on Living with Liberty. The vote for speaker showed just how conditioned we've become to our government running on predetermined outcomes and, and predetermined lines of, of succession. And I'm including myself in that bit of uh, conditioning here. I mean, I think we've all come to expect how oh, the Speaker of the House, that's going to take, uh, that's a one vote thing. We already know who it's going to be, and it's a done deal, just a formality. They've got to vote on it. That's not normally how things ran. Our government was set up with the express intent that healthy debate was going to be the norm, including when it comes to electing the Speaker of the House. Everything should be debated. We should have the best people in those positions. I mean, the Speaker of the House is a leadership position. They're deciding what bills hit the floor. They are typically the leader of whatever majority party is uh, holds the House. So, so they, there should be some rigorous debate around that. And again, like I said, myself's included in, in that. I became so conditioned to that and just not having that debate that I was, I don't know if I was like as on edge as a lot of other people were. Uh, it certainly did seem like a circus. Uh, but again, that's because we're not used to that sort of thing. It's, it wasn't the chaos it was portrayed to be in the media. Do I think some things were hurt along the lines? Yeah, probably. But I think by and large, the end of the day, we'll go over it here in a minute, uh, the, the Republicans and, and specifically the House uh, Freedom Caucus got uh, the concessions that they needed to make sure to, to, that they needed to ensure they were doing the will of the, their constituents that elected them to office in the first place. And that's what we saw with this, this vote for speaker was we had a group that had power because of such a slim margin because of the incompetence of the RNC, which we've covered at length here before, that the, the margin was so slim that the House Freedom Caucus had a lot of power and a lot of sway in this vote for Speaker. And what we saw and what the outcome was, I think, is, is very, a very good outcome, actually. And now, did I want McCarthy as Speaker? No, but I think, and we'll go over it here in a bit, I do think he'll be more accountable and more mindful of the House Freedom Caucus and what we as Americans want. My opinion is the Republican Party should be the House Freedom Caucus, but unfortunately we have a bunch of uniparty uni swamp rats in there still that, that just do whatever their corporate sponsors tell them to do. So again, I, I think th this is a lesson for all of us, you know, from Kevin McCarthy on down to us who I haven't experienced this in our lifetimes of a multiple vote for Speaker of the House. Now, what we saw in this vote for Speaker of the House was exactly that, a healthy debate with a group of congressional members doing what their voters sent them to Washington to do, to clean up Washington, to bring transparency to our government, and represent the interest of the people in our government and dare I say, move us towards a more functional form of government. 
Now, as I mentioned before, legacy media wants to portray the 15-round vote as chaos and discord among Republicans, and honestly, I'd expect nothing less from the activists that pose as journalists. But as we take a deeper look and look at some history, it, it was far from that. Now, of course, the media is going to do all they can to cast doubt on the Republican Party. No matter what chaos, what scandals, what incompetence we're seeing from the Democrat Party, that is the party of choice for the media. They're going to do anything and everything they can to discredit, to bring down, to make the part, uh, Republican Party look bad. It, that's just what it is. And that's what we're seeing in the media with some of the stories. I'll link some of them in the description box. Uh, saying that, you know, it was chaos. It was Republicans can't get together, blah, blah, blah. It was far from that. This kind of debate, debate on the House Speaker used to be a fairly regular occurrence until the Democrat and Republican parties took a stranglehold on American politics in the years, I'd say, directly preceding the Civil War, call it the 1850s, um, certainly by the 1860s. The vote that handed McCarthy the gavel was the 15th time the House Speakership went multiple rounds, but only the second time since 1860. Now, from 18, or excuse me, 1793 to 1860, the longest stretch between multiple round votes for a Speaker of the House was 11 years. You heard that right. The longest stretch was 11 years. So it was a fairly common occurrence from, call it our founding, essentially, to 1860, to when the Civil War started. Now, from 1860 to today, it's only happened twice. We've had, and we've had gaps of 63 years and now 100 years. So we went from 1860 to 1923 when the last multiple ballots for uh, multiple rounds of votes for speaker were cast. And it's been a hundred years since then that we have yet another, um, another round here with multiple votes for speaker of the house. Now we've been conditioned to take whatever party leadership wants to force on the people and whomever the corporate sponsors of, a, of our governmental officials want in power. That's that's, we've been conditioned to that. Hey, I've said it before, these, these politicians should, their, their coats should look like a NASCAR. I want to know who's sponsoring them. I don't want to have to dig through their campaign finance reports, which is an option. You can do it. It's public record, and I have done that. I've looked at uh, some, some of uh, my elected officials to see where their funds coming from. And, and we've talked about it before. Last show, actually, money is a motivator. Money creates bias. As much as you say it doesn't, at the end of the day, where are those campaign funds coming in or coming in from? The, these politicians are going to do what their corporate sponsors want, by and large. We have some good ones, the House Freedom Caucus, among them, right? The members are there. We have some good senators. I think of mine, Ron Johnson. I think of Rand Paul, some of these, these uh, more, I guess you could call them Tea Party uh, type uh, um, officials that were elected during that time that have the interest of the people at heart, right? But by and large, what lobbyist is handing me money? What lobbyist is, uh, you know, what what firm do they represent and, and are they donating them a campaign? And that's, it creates bias. I don't care what you say. Money is the ultimate bias creator. Now, Tony Perkins 
is he's president of the Family Research Council. He puts it this way on the uh, in terms of the vote for speaker. He says this. The reality is the transference of power, like every issue confronting Congress, was never meant to be predetermined by a powerful few. Amen. He goes on. It was meant to be, as all governing was meant to be, a dynamic process where everyone has a voice. And yet Americans have grown so accustomed to things being forced upon us that when we actually see the process functioning as it should, we panic. Yes. We've, uh, we've become accustomed to that. I'm not... And I'm I'm saying we is in the sense of I'm including myself in that we have become accustomed to things just having a predetermined outcome. Well, it's Kevin McCarthy's turn now. He's going to be the the leader of the Republicans, and he's going to be Speaker of the House because it's his turn. The, 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 in this line of succession in government, it, it should never be because the, it's government's the only place you can fail upward, and we've seen lots of that over the years. We continue to see it. We should have a robust process. We should have a voice, and that's what the House Freedom Caucus was ensuring, that the people had a voice in the vote for Speaker of the House. To make sure that the Speaker of the House was going to bring forth the legislation that we sent our representatives to Washington to bring forth for a vote. Yay or nay. Not whatever agenda they wanted to to pursue as Speaker of the House, not whatever agenda their corporate sponsor wanted, the agenda of we the people. Now, with the stranglehold the Democrat and Republican Party have on our politics, we constantly have the chosen ones of either party forced upon us. We just do. And it's regardless of their ability to lead. Again, in politics, they don't look at that. They they don't look at ability to lead. It's just who's been here the longest, who's made the most deals uh, with me, who's given me what what I've wanted, who's done what party leadership has wanted, who's done what our corporates with uh, who's done what our corporate sponsors sponsors have wanted. It's these politician sponsors who end up with the loudest voice at the table, not we the people. So what the Fre- uh, House Freedom Caucus did by holding out until their demands were met was return the balance of power. In the House, back to the people. It's our House. The House of Representatives is the people's House. The Senate, as screwed up as it is, was supposed to be the state's House and voice. That's essentially should be our voice, too, since we popularly elect senators. So the House Freedom Caucus did us a favor by by, by, uh, making sure the process ran as it should. By having that debate that we should be having with these things. I was glad the House Freedom Caucus was holding up the ascendancy of, of McCarthy. Our government needs to function in a different way. It needs to operate in a different way. The rules of the House needed to be different. And, and they ensured that they got what they felt was needed, what probably what their constituents were demanding, <laughs> what some of us that aren't their constituents were demanding. And they held out until they got it. I, I, I don't see a problem with that. It, it certainly wasn't chaos. Again, I think there were some things. Uh, you read some stories about Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert. I mean, they're they're hopefully they can work with McCarthy, right, for the good of their constituents. Um, they seem to be the the two biggest holdouts that were never McCarthy. Fine, I get it. We have tons of never Trumpers out there. I get it. Hopefully that doesn't preclude them from working with with McCarthy. And I hope it doesn't preclude 
uh, McCarthy from taking them seriously and what their constituents want, because that is his job as Speaker of the House, to make sure that the voice of the people is heard and legislation was brought to the floor that is going to help us be a better country. Now, the concessions the House Freedom Caucus won in exchange for uh, giving their votes to McCarthy are not inconsequential to the functioning of our government. Uh, again, I, I, like I said, this was a, it's a major win here. It, it, you might not see it that way yet, um, but hopefully I can outline what a major win this was that this small group of 20 representatives who held out until they got every one of their demands met in exchange for giving their vote to McCarthy. I hope I can outline how big of a win this is for freedom and liberty and for the functioning of our country here. Now, I have a piece from the Federalist here that I'll, again, I'll link it in the description box. It outlines several of the major concessions McCarthy granted in order to take over the Speaker's gavel. Now, first and possibly the most important, and this is as, uh, as it relates to the accountability of the Speaker of the House, is the rule that it will take a motion by a single congressperson to remove the speaker. Now, this rule had been changed under Pelosi so that it took a majority of the majority party to vote on that motion to vacate before it was put to the full House for a vote. And presumably this was to keep the squad at bay because prior to that, um, there have been several iterations, I believe, of the rule over time, but... Uh, prior to that, it it took uh, maybe a couple um, a couple of members bringing forth this motion. Uh, I think this is really going back to uh, believe that was the Jeffersonian motion is what it was called, where it was single person could hold the speaker accountable and say, "I I uh, make a motion for the speaker of the house to be vacated." That's a major win. It it it's, makes the speaker of the house accountable to what the party uh, party objectives are that any single person, Republican or Democrat, can make a motion to have the Speaker's chair vacated. Now, the rule change under Pelosi, the, the only thing accomplished by that was to consolidate more power in the Speaker's role. And, and we've seen this over the years, where more and more power was accumulated by the Speaker, whether it's this changing of the of the rules to vacate, to, of the rules to make a motion to vacate the seat, the speaker's seat, to the voting by proxy uh, under COVID, to you name it. I, it seems to have gotten really bad under Pelosi with this consolidation of power in the speaker's chair. Now, what, the, what, what did that mean? Well, in effect, it meant the House became a mini monarchy. Pelosi wasn't accountable to anyone. She had no fear of anyone saying, well, you're not doing the will of the people, we're making a motion to, you know, to, to vacate the seat, to vacate the speaker's seat. It became a mini-monarchy. Uh, Pelosi wasn't accountable to anyone. There's no way a majority of the majority Democrats were going to go along with any motion to, to remove Pelosi from speaker. It, it just wasn't going to happen. And then, if she did, there was, it was, un, you know, it was, Unlikely that there'd be a, because that wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get it to a vote then. I mean, you'd have the squad and that's about it. So it wasn't going to happen. I mean, and it, 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 
you know, even if you had the one, right, and we'll get to this in a minute, I guess, here, but even if you had the, the rule where it's anyone can do it, you weren't going to get a majority of, of the, uh, unless it was really egregious, I guess, you weren't going to get a majority of the House under Democrats to vote to remove Pelosi. But McCarthy now will have that accountability since all it takes is one person to bring the motion forth. Yes, Democrats, I said, as I said before, can also bring the motion to vacate forth, but it's unlikely they would be the ones to do it because they would have to then convince five Republicans to go along with the vote on the final resolution to vacate the Speaker's chair. And given today's political environment, that just isn't going to happen. There's, there's no way five Republicans are going to vote with Democrats on anything. Uh, it's, we're just such a divided country. Our districts, for the most part, are uh, very strong blue or very strong red. There's very few, uh, very few purple districts anymore. And the ones that are, you know, if you're a Republican sitting in a purple district, well, the people have uh, elected you to there for a reason. So you're really going to vote with a Democrat on something like removing the Speaker of the House. I doubt it. Now, a- another concession agreed to by Kevin McCarthy was a church-style commission to investigate the weaponization of the FBI and other governmental agencies against the people. Perfect, I say. This is another huge win. He... McCarthy agreed to this. If he doesn't do it, someone, uh, you get one congressperson can make the motion to vacate the seat because he's not doing what he agreed to. There's accountability here now. And I say this is perfect because we deserve, as people, we pay the salaries, we pay for the infrastructure of the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and whoever else. We deserve to know the depth of corruption at the three-letter agencies. The FBI has obviously been targeting people with a certain political leaning. That's not up for debate. It's obvious. And if you don't think so, why wasn't Biden's houses raided by the FBI as soon as it came out? He had classified documents at his house. Why, why haven't we seen a, Biden, a raid on Biden's properties? So they've been targeting, obviously targeting, people with a certain political leaning and seem to have, like I said, they've forgotten where Biden lives. Well, he's got a glass where uh, FBI's like, I don't know where Biden lives. We're kind of look the other way on that and let it come out. We're not going to go raiding though. I mean, they raided project Veritas. They've raided, um, uh, Roger Stone. Uh, we've seen other raids. I, I think about this, uh, pro-life, uh, he was a pastor, I believe it was Tennessee, I don't exactly remember the state he lived in now, where the FBI basically came up and arrested him for attending a pro-life rally outside or protesting outside an abortion clinic, which is his right to do, as long as he's not obstructing the entrance to the clinic or anything. Welcome to be on the public property, the sidewalk, outside that abortion clinic, or uh, or across the street, wherever, protesting but the FBI went and got them. Tell me they're not targeting people with certain political leanings. Don't, don't even, you, you can't, it's obvious. Anyone with their head not up their ass can see it. It's time for transparency and accountability within our three-letter agencies. The next demand of the Freedom Caucus here, moving on, is that McCarthy um, holds a vote on term limits. Now, let's be honest, 
any vote on this on term limits, any vote on a bill for term limits, any vote on any constitutional amendment someone brings forth in the House on term limits is going to be symbolic at this point. It's going to be symbolic. It, to get any traction on this, we need to call a convention of the states and get it as a constitutional amendment. It can't just be some bill they pass in the House, which is kind of what it sounds like uh, in reading this, uh, is what the thought here is, is have a bill on term limits. It has to be a constitutional amendment. A bill's easy. A bill is easy to overturn. A bill is easy to put a sunset date on, right? A constitutional amendment, the process to get it uh, approved is is very laborious. There's a high bar that needs to be met, and the, the, the process to get it repealed or overturned is the same long, laborious process. That's why it needs to be a constitutional amendment. Term limits can't be something that are are just put in a bill and that can be easily overturned when someone else takes uh, you know takes say call it Democrats take the house back it, it just can't it has to it really is going to have to go through a, co- a convention of the states it's going to have to be a constitutional amendment now this is still important it's important because one yeah it's symbolic because Democrats and Republicans are like they're not going to vote. To, to term limit their fleecing operation. They're just not. But the thing it will do is publicize the issue to a broader swath of the American people. And it will be, uh, it will be a, a, um, a mechanism to make them aware of the need to limit the time in office of these politicians, that this is an issue that people want, uh, that people are asking for. Let's get it out there. You put a vote on there. It's in the record. We have a record of who in the House then would vote against it. Right. So it's it's not only, you know, it's, it's not only symbolic in that it'll bring up, um, bring attention to the issue, but it, it also be symbolic because a vote on it puts people on the record. It puts them on the record as saying, hey, yeah, I I want to be a career politician. I'm voting no on term limits. So now, some you might have some that are would be embarrassed to vote no on that and will vote yes. Is it a Republican platform item? No, so they, you know, they can get away from it that way by saying, yeah, it's not a platform item. It's not a big part of our platform. So we're going to, you know, that's why I voted no. It's not, you know, something we're pursuing at, at the time as a Republican party. But, but at, at the end of the day, they're on the record. So if people want to go and say, hey, what are your posi- what's your position on term limits? I can go and see you voted no. You know, I'm going to talk to that politician and say, look, you voted no on the term limits. I'm I'm a proponent of term limits. You shouldn't be in Washington forever. That's how we got where we're at. We have forever politicians there. We have no new ideas coming in. We have no uh, uh, we have no different points of view. It's just what you want to do, and you don't listen to the people anyway. So we're we're going to term limit you, and it brings a term limit brings more accountability and and more freedom for these politicians to vote on what's actually right for our country, not just what's going to get them reelected over and over and over. So I, I, again, symbolic, but I think it's a great win because it'll put these, these politicians on record as to what their stance is on term limits. And we'll see which ones are the ones that just want to be career politicians and don't really want to do the hard work. They just want to do what they need to do to keep getting reelected. Okay, the next one, 
uh, next um, concession that the House Freedom Caucus won is, is one of those I've mentioned before, and I'm a big proponent of this, and that is a single issue per bill with a 72-hour review period. Minimum 72 hours. It can be longer, obviously, but congressional members will get 72 hours to review bills that are uh, coming up for vote on the House floor before having to vote on them. What does that mean? That means no more omnibus bills that are stuffed with thousands of pages of pork that nobody has time to read before having to vote on it. The old Pelosi, well, we got to pass the bill to know what's in it. That, that's over. This is a, another big win. One issue per, that's how it should be. One issue per bill. Okay, we've got a bill to fund our agencies. Send that through. Okay, representative from California wants money for, you know, some pork project for a bridge that's going to end up going nowhere. No, vote no. So we know exactly what's being voted on because that's, that's the issue is we have our representatives get put in a tough position on these bills, having to, having to vote yes on them because it funds certain, uh, certain uh, important and, and key things that help our government function, like oh, national defense, while having to also suck down the fact that we're shoveling money into states for state projects that really should be funded by the people of that state I shouldn't be in Wisconsin funding road projects or anything else in California. Interstate system's a different story. That, that's a national thing, right? But break it down to the, the um, more state level, like state highways, et cetera, roads on the side streets. I shouldn't be funding that crap with my tax dollars. I live in Wisconsin. I'm never going to see the benefit of that. It's ridiculous, these pork projects. And sending money to Pakistan for gender studies, no more of that. We'll get these fools on the record, one issue per bill, of who votes for this crap, and then we'll say, you're gone. Right? We have, we have uh, a mechanism then with this to see exactly where these people lie on these issues that they stuff into these thousand-page bills. No funding bill for the government should be a thousands of pages. Shouldn't be 4,000 pages. Shouldn't be any thousands of pages. We're, st- we're going to have visibility and, and transparency in that. Oh, the next one here is the Texas border plan. So McCarthy has agreed to bringing this to a, uh, a vote, uh, the Texas border plan, which has a four-pronged approach of completing the physical border infrastructure. So the wall, basically, finish the wall. Fix border enforcement policies. How about we just start with, uh, do we need to fix them? There's probably some that need to be fixed. How about we just start with enforcement of border policies? Start there. Say no more. You're not coming here anymore. Done. You come here legally. Enforce our laws in the interior. Yeah, how about we know, okay, we've released all these people to the interior. How about we uh, make them show up for their court dates then? that we're releasing them with, that you know damn well they're not going to show up for these court dates. They're just going to mix into the population and hide, and, and that'll be that. So enforcing our laws on the interior, our immigration laws on the interior, ICE, et cetera, and target the cartels and criminal organizations. Exactly. That's what we need to be doing. 
we need the we need we need Congress to stand up for the borders of our country because if we don't have a secure border, we don't have a country. If you have a, a, an open border, you, what country do you have? None. In the last couple here, uh, we have the COVID uh, COVID mandates being ended, so no more proxy voting, uh, and then and no more funding for COVID COVID mandates, and no more funding, emergency funding, no more emergency, none of that. And the last one here is budget bills would stop the endless raising of the debt ceiling. Yes, we can't keep raising our debt ceiling. I, I can't just go and, and keep requesting from my credit card company that they keep raising my limit. Eventually, because of what, I, uh, what my salary is, my income, I'm going to cap out. They're going to say no. No more. I can't just keep going and say, okay, I spent up to my limit. Credit card company, I need you to raise my limits more. I can't do that. It'll stop at a point. We've got in this country unsustainable debt. It's never going to be paid off. It, never. Who's going to pay off? When are we ever going to pay off $30 trillion of debt? You, you want to talk about inflation? Look at that. What, what do you think $30 trillion in debt and some of that's printed money? We've inflated the money supply. Uh, that, that's where it comes from, partially. We're spending money we don't have. We're printing money that we don't have backed. So that, that's a big win. Balanced budgets. We're not going to raise the debt ceiling anymore in these budget bills. We're going to say... Okay, this is the money we've got coming in from tax revenue. Here's how much the spending bills are going to be. And, oh, well, this is where we're going to have to cut. Sorry, Pakistan, we're not going to be able to launder $10 million for you for gender studies. Sorry, Ukraine, we're not going to be able to launder billions of, of dollars through you for whatever to defeat Putin. Perfect. These are all major wins. These are the wins that, that, these are the reasons why there was a holdout on McCarthy becoming speaker because we needed these seven items, and there's a few more out there, but these are the, we needed these seven to return our government to some semblance of transparency, to return our government to one that's run by the people, to return our government to uh, valuing freedom and liberty to valuing ourselves as a country by closing up the southern border. And I say return, we're not going to get there overnight. It's going to be a process, but this puts us on that path. These, Like I said, these are all major wins for the conservative cause, for the American cause. I mean, this really, these shouldn't be just a conservative cause. They, they should be an American cause. We should all, whether we're Republican or Democrat, value these things. Want to know where our money's going. We we should want a secure border. We should want debate on who the Speaker of the House is going to be. These are all major wins, and they're going to start to restore the balance of power to the people. Subscriptions are one of the big ways podcasts get discovered. So if you could please do me a favor... Whatever platform you are listening to uh, listening to the show on or viewing us on, please hit the subscribe button. It will give you an alert whenever a new Living with Liberty is published, and the subscriptions help us get into the recommendations so others can find the show. All right, moving on. In the latest attempt to regulate every aspect of our lives, 
The U.S. Consumer Protection Bureau is considering a ban on gas stoves. The reason for the ban? Well, according to a study, they can cause respiratory and health issues. Now, this is bureaucracy run amok, plain and simple. And if our recent history with government studies is any indication, who knows, they probably learned how to study this from Pfizer, where they did a study on the COVID vaccine. If our history, recent history with government studies is any indication, I'm not all that confident in the science behind this study they're using as a basis to try and ban gas stoves. Now, you know who else isn't buying this? The American Gas Association. According to a Fox business piece titled American Gas Association Fires Back on Potential Gas Stove Ban, not substantiated by sound science, and that's by Sarah Rumpf, the AGA states that the emissions from cooking with gas are similar to cooking with electric. And they also point out how we've, oh, you know, very inconvenient that this gets left out of this, but they point out uh, as well how we've converted a bunch of coal power plants over to natural gas burning power plants because natural gas is a cleaner burning fuel. Oh, uh, yeah, let's just throw that convenient fact out. Well, gas stoves, yeah, that's bad. That's, you know... Uh, emissions in your house. It's not going anywhere. Oh, gas power plants, that's, you know, that's fine. They're cleaner than coal. And it's spewing many more times emissions or whatever else into the atmosphere that everybody breathes over the city. So, ah, you know, but that's, that's you know, that that's just inconvenient to the narrative here. So what's this really about? What is this, this <laughs> a push, I guess you could call it, or idea or whatever. I It's stupid is what it is. But What's this really about? Well, let's look no further than the words of Jocahontas and Bernie Sanders and Spartacus himself, Cory Booker. They wrote a letter to the Consumer Protection Bureau and it was expressing their concerns regarding the risks posed by consumers from indoor air pollution generated by gas stoves. This group pointed out that more than 40 million homes in the U.S. rely on gas stoves for cooking and methane leaks from gas stoves inside U.S. homes were recently found to contribute to the equivalent climate impacts as about 500,000 gasoline-powered cars would, and that's from uh, Sarah Rumpf's article here. And then it goes on uh, to say this, and this is also, you know, the kicker, right? So the, the triumvirate of idiots here added that the cumulative effect of such emissions had a disproportionate impact on black, Latino, and low-income households, and there you have it. Climate impact and its impact on Democrats' pet groups. This has nothing to do with any actual impact to people's health. You already knew that, though. You're all smart. This is an attempt to score political points with the climate alarmists and their lobbyists, and to make themselves look like the champions of the voter blocks that are leaving the Democrat Party in droves. That's what this is about. Oh, I'm looking out for your health because a gas stove emits, uh, you know, in the house, it emits methane and it's not good for your health. And, oh, it disproportionately affects blacks, Latinos, and other uh, other um, low-income household groups or whatever. I, give me a break. This is all crap. It's all crap. How I want to know, what I want to know is how did they gather the data to know how much methane is leaking from people's stoves? 
How'd they gather this data? Did someone go house to house to gather that data and then do a scientific study and do actual measurements on what the impact is to the atmosphere and do some, hey, okay, we've gone to every house in the nation that has a gas stove. We've measured how much is leaking out of the stove, methane's leaking out of the stove, etc. Here's the actual impact to the atmosphere. Now, again, methane's a, it's also a natural occurring gas, right? I mean, just stupid. It's in our atmosphere anyway. And what little bit might be leaking from my stove isn't going to impact that one way or the other. Now, I highly doubt that this, they did any sort of rigorous study on this, uh, considering I've had a gas stove for a long time and never once has anyone come to my door to ask if I had one and say, ask if they could take measurements to see if it was leaking and how much it was leaking. No, that none of that. They had to have done a fair bit of just making up data based on a small sample size to put together this report that was given to the Consumer Protection Bureau to base this threat to outlaw gas stoves off of. They, they had to have. They had to make this up. How You can't take a small sample size, and this is just that, pe- again, this is just the peanut butter approach that these fools on the left take. Well, one gas stove must be is leaking. They all must be leaking. Oh, that one gas stove is is giving off this much methane while it's leaking. Well, all of them do. And now, oh, by the time we get all said and done, yeah, the climate impacts the same as five hundred thousand uh, gasoline powered cars. No, it's not. I'll say this: if there was a health issue, if this was a health issue, if gas stoves were really unsafe. Wouldn't these issues have been raised a long time ago? I mean, we've had the technology to to look at this for a long time. Gas stoves themselves have been around since the 1820s. So we've had 200 years to gather data on them. It's pretty strange now that all of a sudden gas stoves are an issue. It's very, very strange to me that all of a sudden we've had gas stoves for 200 years, but now in 2023, they are an issue. We're so concerned about their, their impact to people's health and their respiratory issues and blah, blah, blah. We've got to outlaw them now. Even though they've been around for 200 years, and we've had 200 years to gather data on them. And all, over those 200 years, um, it seems that, well, they've been actually pretty safe to operate. And honestly, if anybody smells a, a you know, methane gas leak in their house, they're going to do something about it. Because if methane gas is leaking in your house and you light a match, it's probably going to blow up your house. So, so the, the argument by the, the, the uh, three clowns I mentioned before that th- this is, you know, some sort of, uh, of emission impact that disproportionately impacts blacks, Latinos, other low-income people, whatever, it doesn't hold weight. Because even, even if you have, you know, if you're low-income or whatever, if you smell gas in your house, you're going to do something about it, and it's probably not going to be leaking in there anymore because it's a danger. This isn't about health issues. It's about controlling you. It's about giving in to the lobbyists funding these politicians. There's been plenty of opportunity to evaluate and outlaw gas stoves because of safety concerns, but it hasn't been done. Why? Because they've been proven safe for use for decades. Dare I say centuries. They've been around since 1820s. 
this is a bureaucracy. This, this whole thing is bureaucracy with nothing better to do and too much power looking to appease the climate lobby and whatever politicians the climate lobby supports. End of story. If you are listening to the audio-only version and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit the Rumble or Thumbs Up button. The more interactions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right, finishing up for today. Watch how quickly the Trump classified document raid and and trial or whatever they're doing with it these days. Watch how quickly that gets swept under the rug now that Biden got caught with classified documents being used as a mouse nest in his garage. As I look around the news universe at this story, it's been going for now a good good week, let's call it. It seems as though there's not as huge of a rush by legacy media to defend Biden as there has been on his many other moments of idiocy. Perhaps it's because this now totally destroys the Trump had classified documents that he shouldn't have had under lock and key and secret service protection, so throw him in jail narrative. It destroys that. You you can't go after Trump now. That that whole story, it's a whole non-story now that this has come out about Biden. That's why the media shills aren't running to Biden's aid on this one. They're they're admonishing him. For the most part, there's you've got your apologists out there. Don't get me wrong, but by and large, the the sources I've looked through, you know, some of the ones that are left leaning, you've got your AP, your CNN, uh, you've got Democrats, rep, uh, representatives, and senators coming out saying, "Yeah, that was really bad. That was irresponsible." Everybody's calling them out on this. They can't, and and they can't. They have to because if they didn't, they'd look even more ridiculous than they already do. So they have no choice but to call Biden out on this, especially after the Biden's after the comments Biden had made in the, in the aftermath of the Trump document raid. Now, there's a key point here, and what is key here is what the documents actually are, and who has the authority to declassify them. Now, Trump, as president, has the ultimate authority to declassify documents. Where Biden, as VP at the time uh, that he took the documents, only had the authority, and still, I guess, only to this day, because they're uh, documents he took as VP, only had the authority to declassify the documents that his office or himself had classified. And that's in accordance with an executive order that was signed by George W. Bush, and I believe it was about 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. The way this story has unfolded, it doesn't seem as if the documents in question are ones that were classified by Biden or the office of the vice president. So that poses a big problem for him. Trump had the authority to say the documents he had at Mar-a-Lago were declassified, which would trigger the legal uh, battle, easy for me to say today, trigger the legal battle over when they were declassified. What time period were they declassified before he left the White House? Did he declassify them after it was discovered he had them? And could they, uh, basically, could they have been declassified or should they have been? Uh, so that that's where the difference is. Trump has the authority to do that. Biden doesn't. Biden as VP had no ability or authority 
to declassify any documents if they weren't generated by his office. So if it was a an Intel document, if it was one from the president's office, Biden had as a VP had no authority to declassify them, to say they're declassified, and he has no authority to have them in his possession. Now, the other piece of this just further shows the incompetence of Joe Biden. Who keeps sensitive documents in their garage? Anyone? Anybody? Anybody out there? Do you keep like your credit card number, your account, uh, bank account numbers, anything, social security? Do you just keep that in a box out in the garage? And then, you know, it's a nice day. You leave the garage open. You might forget to close it. Do you leave? I mean, no, nobody does that. Now, apparently Joe Biden is one of the few on the planet who thinks it's okay to keep documents that are potentially vital to our national security in his garage. This, I'll say this, this, this really now, this, this whole, uh, this whole scandal, let's call it, of, of Biden having classified documents, it really needs to test the blue, no matter who mantra of the Democrat party. It needs to test that. If Biden announces his candidacy for presidency, someone needs to, in the Democrat Party, primary him. We can't have this anymore. This guy is incompetent. He obviously believes he's better than everyone else. He believes he's smarter than everyone else when he's really the dumbest guy in the room. And he believes he's above the law. This is really going to complicate Joe's expected announcement that he is going to run for a second term. I wouldn't necessarily call this a Watergate moment yet. We need to know what exactly the documents entailed, what was in them, what did they contain, and who had access to them. Were there copies made of them? Did Joe give them to the Chinese? Did Joe give them to Hunter? Because uh, this, isn't, this isn't like what Trump had. Trump had them in a locked room under Secret Service protection and was working with the National Archives to... Uh, determine if he had to return them or if he could hold on to them or what to do with them. And they just decided to raid his home. Trump was cooperating. Joe, this all of a sudden just came out. Like, he made no mention of this. So this is really going to complicate things for him. Who had access to them? Who did he give them to? Who looked at them? Why are they in a garage? Uh, These are all questions. These are all considerations that we need to be thinking about as people. As American people, like I said, it could impact and probably has impacted, knowing the corruption we've got going on in the with the Biden family, has impacted our national security. This is certainly, though, it's not, like I said, not a Watergate moment yet. But it's certainly another embarrassment in a long line of them for Biden, for Democrats. I mean, they got behind this guy who's supposed to be the the moderate we all could get behind, and he's been nothing but a leftist tool. Nothing, this is just another embarrassment, and Republicans need to take advantage. They need to be smart and not let up on the opportunity here to inflict maximum political damage from this latest round of buffoonery from the resident-in-chief. Now, before I go, don't forget to tune in live to Rucksack Radio on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central for Laughs and Liberty with Tom and me. You can catch us live on Riverside FM, Rumble, YouTube, or Switch. We'd love to engage with you all in the chats. It's always a good time. 7 p.m. Central. Catch us live. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. 
There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth.